The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, our independent, reader-supported, investigative news outlet. I'm your host, as always, David Sirota. In the first half of today's show, we're going to be talking about Joe Biden's speech in Philadelphia last week, in which he called out MAGA Republicans as the single greatest threat to American democracy. We're also going to be discussing why the Biden administration still seems to be trying to crush student debtors in bankruptcy court. And we'll be talking about a Democratic primary for a congressional seat in Rhode Island and the Wall Street-backed candidate currently leading in the polls, the larger trend being big money trying to once again buy a Democratic primary. Then, uh, later on in the show, we're going to be sharing our first field segment out in the streets, our coverage of the Labor Day March in New York City, which was co-organized by the Amazon Labor Union and Starbucks Workers United. The Levers Julia Rock and producer Frank were on the ground at the march talking to organizers, attendees, uh, and the ALU president, Chris Smalls. Uh, and the march happened when there was some very good news for some of that unionization effort. This week also, our paid subscribers will get a bonus segment, my interview with a Tufts University professor whose new book argues that too many people are obsessed with what he calls political hobbyism rather than actual activism and organizing for real power. If you want access to Levertime Premium, you can head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. That gives you access to all of our premium content, and you'll be able to directly support the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. For the first part of today's show, I'm now joined by The Lever's Julia Rock. Hey, Julia, how was your weekend? You know, not bad. How, how about you? It was okay. Had a nice barbecue here in Denver for um, Labor Day. We're also joined by The Lever's Matthew Cunningham Cook. Hey, Matthew. Hey, David. Glad to be here. And as always, producer Frank. What's up, Frank? You were at the protest in New York this weekend, right? Yeah, Julie and I both went. It was a hot Labor Day and it was a hot Labor Summer, um, but it was a lot of fun. It was it was really great being out there. I can't wait to hear the segment on it later in, in this show. But for f the first part of this show, we're going to go through a bunch of questions uh, to round up the news of the last week or so. Okay, question one. Was Joe Biden's speech in Philadelphia enough to save democracy? So it appears that Dark Brandon continues his rise in the polls, and he is now moving into a fight that he portrays as a fight to save American democracy. Uh, quick clarification for those of you who don't know, Dark Brandon is the celebratory name that liberals on Twitter and on social media have coined for Joe Biden now that his administration seems to be doing some good things uh, that actually help people. A little bit belated, but certainly some things like debt cancellation that actually do help people. 
And that is admittedly confusing uh, because Dark Brandon is good, even though it sounds like it's bad. Dark Brandon equals good. That's all you need to know. The dark is a, is a positive, I guess. I, I, I don't know the exact mythology behind this, but Dark Brandon is a way, I guess, people compliment Joe Biden. The Internet is a confusing place. We can't make sense of it. <laughs> it's so confusing. So last week... Uh, on Thursday, Biden gives this speech at Independence Hall in Philadelphia, obviously the place where the Declaration of Independence uh, and the Constitution were both ratified. And in another surprising turn, Dark Brandon appeared and called out what he believes is the biggest threat currently facing American democracy. Here's a snippet of what he said. Just a heads up for the audience, I did speed up the audio a little bit because Joe Biden is a slow talker. But I don't want anyone accuse I don't want anyone accusing us of doctoring, okay? That is not what this was. And here, in my view, is what is true. MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. They refuse to accept the results of a free election. And they're working right now, as I speak, in state after state, to give power to decide elections in America to partisans and cronies, empowering election deniers to undermine democracy itself. MAGA forces are determined to take this country backwards, backwards to an America where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy, no right to contraception, no right to marry who you love. They promote authoritarian leaders and they fan the flames of political violence that are a threat to our personal rights, to the pursuit of justice, to the rule of law, to the very soul of this country. So this was all scandalized. There was like this big scandal, like Joe Biden's speech is so scandalous. I mean, to my mind, this is like mom and apple pie shit. I mean, this is like the basic thing a, a president and a, a party leader should do. And by the way, my, my other take here is that this is long overdue. We need to start calling out fascism very explicitly. But there's one thing that I think that, that was missing here. Biden is rightly attacking the far right. And for reasons he listed out that are factual, but he's sort of insinuating that the rise of fascism is some kind of like random evil, kind of something out of like a movie, like just evil for evil's sake. And he's not really diagnosing where it actually comes from. He's not connecting the rise of fascism to basic economic conditions in this country. And I've played this clip before and I want to play it again real quick because making that connection is what FDR did in 1938 at a similar moment in history when fascism was on the rise. Listen to this quick clip from FDR. Listen to how different it is from what Biden said. Democracy has disappeared in several other great nations. Disappeared not because the people of those nations disliked democracy, but because they had grown tired of unemployment and insecurity, of seeing their children hungry while they sat helpless in the face of government confusion, government weakness, weakness through lack of leadership in government. Finally, in desperation, they chose to sacrifice liberty in the hope of getting something to eat. We in America know that our own democratic institutions can be preserved and made to work. But in order to preserve them, we need to act together to meet the problems of the nation boldly, 
and to prove that the practical operation of democratic government is equal to the task of protecting the security of the people. So Biden isn't making that argument, and I I think he needs to make that argument. Now, Producer Frank, I'll turn to you and say, listen, there's been this argument that Biden was like wrong to call out fascism, that he should be seeking national unity, and that all he did was behave like some partisan and poke the right wing bear in this speech, and he shouldn't have done that. What do you make of that that argument? Oh, personally, I don't think he went far enough. Um, I mean, in this entire speech, he didn't even say the word fascism. He just kept saying threat to democracy, threat to democracy, MAGA Republicans, yada, yada. Um, he did mention fascism uh, just sort of offhandedly a few weeks ago. And he, I think that's what he caught heat for when he called, uh, you know, MAGA Republicans semi-fascists. But someone on his team clearly told him that for this big speech, you know, we're not going to say the F word. You know, we're not going <laughs> to put it out there. Um, it's too extreme. It's too much, uh, which I think is ridiculous. You have to call it what it is. Um, and like you said, he didn't connect it to economic conditions and didn't really drive the, the point home in a, in, a, in a way where the stakes felt as high as they actually are. I, and and my, my view is if you were offended by Joe Biden's speech, if you're offended by criticism of fascists or semi-fascists, it's like a good bet that you're a fascist. Or you're like fascist adjacent or at least fascist tolerant. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even get why this is a scandal or this is controversial. Like a president being like, hey, we should accept election results when when they happen, when they're certified. Uh, people who don't accept those things are authoritarian and fascist. Like, why is this a controversy? I, I don't I don't really get what's so scandalous about what he did. I have no idea. I saw someone on the Internet and I'm quoting here, but someone wrote, remember, it's uncouth in polite society to call something fascism until it's absolutely too late to do anything about it. And I thought (laughs) I thought that that pretty well encapsulated this whole energy of this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, let's go to question two. Why is Joe Biden still crushing some student debtors? Last month, Dark Brandon canceled a decent chunk of America's student debt, up to 20000 bucks for Pell Grant recipients, which was great. But as The Lever's Julia Rock reported, Dark Brandon still has a dark side on student debt. First, Biden's Department of Justice is still aggressively fighting some of the most indebted student debtors in bankruptcy court. Reminder, thanks to Biden's work during his time as a senator, student debt much harder to get rid of in bankruptcy court. During the 2020 campaign, Biden endorsed a plan to fix this problem that he himself created, but his Justice Department is currently still going into court to try to overturn favorable rulings for student debtors. Meanwhile, during Joe Biden's speech announcing student debt cancellation, he said this about for-profit colleges that are loading kids up with huge amounts of debt. Listen to this. And one more big change we're making to the system is we're holding colleges accountable for jacking up costs without delivering value to students. But here's the thing. As Julia also reported, Biden is refusing to reinstate a rule first created by the Obama-Biden administration, but then repealed by Donald Trump that would punish predatory schools that knowingly leave graduates with unmanageable debt or low earnings. He's delaying this rule 
as some of these schools are spending millions on lobbying. So, Julia, the question for you, why is Joe Biden doing these two things? Is it bureaucratic incompetence? Is it deliberate? Is he just slow in making these reforms? Is he still uh, doing the bidding of his lending industry donors? What do you think is going on here? You know, I think well, it's possible that it is, you know, bureaucratic incompetence or slowness. Like, okay, the administration is very busy. Um, you know, they, they can't completely... They can't issue every regulation they want to uh, right away. I, I'm not really sure I, I buy. Right, but it's not, it's not just that, to be like, clear. It's really... not Joe Biden sitting at a desk writing the rules, <laughs> right? I mean, he's got True. like hundreds, if not thousands of people working for him. So it's not like he, you know, he writes a rule and then he's got, okay, listen, I can't write it. I got, you know, I got to write the next rule, right? So, so the, I guess the, I always come back to like, is the bureaucratic incompetence deliberate? Is there a method to the madness? And what I actually think it is, is what seems to be emblematic of Dark Brandon, which is that he is willing and able to put some amount of government resources towards helping people. Um, he, you know, at the end of the day, did sign the Inflation Reduction Act, which maybe is going to bring down energy costs and, and extend health insurance subsidies. But the theme with all of these things is that Dark Brandon isn't taking on the corporate bad actors and industries that are causing these problems in the first place. Um, and I think ah. that's exactly what's going on with, you know, the the delaying the rule on for-profit schools, which is there have been these big debt forgiveness programs at some of these for-profits that ripped off students. And yet those same schools remain eligible for the federal student loan program. So the students are having their debt wiped and that's phenomenal. That should happen. But nothing has happened to the schools that defrauded them in the first place. And that is what this rule is about. I kind of buried the lead here a little bit that the rule would essentially deny federal loans to uh, to these to students at these schools that load kids up with debt without any serious effort to make sure that they get into jobs where they can repay the debt. The idea being that if you deny the federal loans, that the schools will will be forced to essentially reform uh, their predatory behavior. And I think you've identified something that maybe the kryptonite for Dark Brandon is that Dark Brandon doesn't want to take on corporate power. Like corporate power is the thing that melts Dark Brandon's powers. <laughs> if, if one of our audience members can turn that into a meme, that would be perfect. <laughs> yes, like I'm, like now we're going. To, we're, we've moved from from Star Wars into Superman lore here. I want to I want to ask you one other question about Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts, who used to be. Uh, Dark Brandon's big enemy on bankruptcy stuff. She used to challenge Dark Brandon on bankruptcy stuff uh, before she, I guess, became a giant fan of Dark Brandon. Uh, she recently weighed into the debate surrounding this issue. Like, I feel like this is the old Elizabeth Warren challenging Joe Biden. What did she do? Uh, what is she demanding? Yeah. So as you mentioned, Biden's Justice Department is still fighting student debtors trying to have, uh, you know, their debt eliminated or at least reduced through the bankruptcy process, which currently you can't do with student debt 
in part, thanks, as you said, to Joe Biden. And Elizabeth Warren sent a letter last week now to Merrick Garland, the attorney general, asking, one, why the Justice Department is still fighting these debtors, but two, asking whether he has any intention of changing the policy of fighting student debtors in bankruptcy court, as the Justice Department has been saying it would do for months now. Um, and I do think that is sort of an additional factor in, in you know, why, why Dark Brandon isn't, um, you know, solving these issues on student debt is that it's not, it might not just be Dark Brandon, it might also be, um, I guess, darker light Merrick Garland, who has ties to the for-profit college industry, the head of his civil division um, previously had uh, colleges, for-profit colleges as clients. Um, so there are sort of deep ties in his administration. Yeah. And, and by the way, Dark Brandon's top aide, Anita Dunn, she also worked on the campaign to try to stop these rules from originally being put into place. I mean, Anita Dunn is is one of Dark Brandon's top people in in the Fortress of Solitude, the the, the White House. Now, <laughs> see, I'm mixing all these. <laughs> I went back to Superman. That was a, a Superman reference. So, I mean, I definitely think there's this web of ties between the Biden administration, uh, the sort of Democratic-led federal government, and the industries that really don't want a crackdown in this area. I think that's that's a really important part of your reporting. Okay, we're going to turn now to question three. Will corporate Democrats win another congressional primary? The Democratic primary season has been marked by huge donors buying primary wins for corporate-backed Democratic candidates. In places like Ohio and New York, uh, candidates, uh, progressive candidates, uh, were spent into the ground by billionaire donors and groups like APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. There have been some exceptions. Summer Lee, a candidate, a progressive candidate in Pennsylvania, Jamie McLeod Skinner in Oregon. Uh, those progressives were both able to overcome a deluge of big money and win their primaries. But look, the trend, the overall trend is clear. Now, in one of the last primaries of the season happening in Rhode Island for an open congressional seat, a similar dynamic is playing out. The Democratic establishment has coalesced around state treasurer Seth Magaziner, the son of Bill Clinton's top aide, Ira Magaziner, against a field of candidates that includes progressive former state representative David Siegel, who's campaigning on Medicare for all and a Green New Deal. Sounds familiar, right? This is the same story that's played out in races all across the country. This week, the Lever's Matthew Cunningham Cook reported a huge story that the local Rhode Island media hasn't really touched. As treasurer, Magaziner moved huge amounts of the retirement savings of the state's teachers, firefighters, and other government workers into high-risk Wall Street investments, costing the state more than a half billion dollars in investment fees. In exchange for crappy returns for those retirees who faced benefit cuts. Now, here's the kicker. Magaziner, in his congressional race, is now raising big campaign cash from the finance industry. This has become a familiar story where politicians in control of retirees' money funnel it to Wall Street, which then funds their campaigns. Now, pensions have become a kind of ATM machine for these public officials. It's politicians equivalent of the Goodfellas relationship to the airport. 
Whenever we needed money, we'd rob the airport. To us, it was better than Citibank. Right? I mean, that's one of my favorite scenes in that movie. It's like they're using the pension funds as a kind of ATM machine to ingratiate themselves uh, with the finance industry. Okay, so Matthew, the big question here is, why does this pension scam keep happening? And why don't voters seem to punish candidates who funnel state money to Wall Street and not get good returns for retirees? I think there's a lot of general discomfort around money in our society. You know, our schools don't teach it. Uh, and there's a lot of obfuscation about it. And the fact is, is that Magaziner has been able to raise huge sums of money relative to his opponents, been able to rack up support from the Democratic Party establishment and elite, uh, in my view, because of his actions he's taken as state treasurer to increase the risk uh, in the pension fund, to increase the fees, uh, and to have worse performance relative to the stock and bond markets. Matthew, what is the state of this congressional race right now? Please, please tell me that the son of Bill Clinton's aide, who has received over $200,000 in finance industry money, is, is not doing well right now. Please tell me that's what's happening. Please tell me. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that's going to be the answer, Matthew. He has a huge lead in the polls. Uh, I mean, there's limited amount of polls. Uh, and Rhode Island has elected a bunch of great progressives, uh, mostly at the state legislative level. Over the last few years, so, um, you know, friend of the pod, David Siegel, uh, might, po point at, might pull out a, a win. But on the whole, what you see is that Magaziner's full support of the Democratic Party establishment is very difficult for anybody who is not him to, to run against. In fact, there's another establishment candidate who's raised plenty of money, uh, and she hasn't caught fire either uh it's it there's there's full-on democratic party elite support for magaziner now i feel like this is one of those primaries by the way that's just one of these frankly northeast urban democratic primaries where the the democratic machine has even more power than it typically does i mean rhode island has a kind of very old school kind of corrupt democratic machine that progressives have been challenging at the at the at the state and local level but at the yeah. congressional level that machine is still super powerful now one last question on this particular race if magaziner does win the primary this is actually a swing district that republicans think they can pick up is there any chance that they're going to use some of this stuff that is out there about Magaziner, about his management of the pension fund, that the Republicans will use that kind of stuff against him in the general election, imperiling Democrats' ability to actually win the seat and retain control of the U.S. House in general? I think that's a real risk. Uh, I think that what we know about Republicans is they'll come up with any reason to smear uh, Democrats, rightly or wrongly. But in this case, there's a wealth of information about Magaziner's performance that should raise real questions about uh, his overall uh, ability to win this seat. Uh, and what you see is when, when sunlight is applied to people who control pension funds, their popularity goes down. We saw that with Chris Christie 
Uh, we saw that with uh, Beth Pierce, the state treasurer of Vermont, who didn't run again. Uh, we see it in a, in a lot of situations that, that their investment decisions become an albatross around their neck uh, that Republicans or, or their opponents generally can exploit. Yeah, and I feel like Republicans in a place like Rhode Island want to run on kind of an anti, anti-corruption message. I think yeah. that's the way that Republicans can sometimes win in these mm-hmm. blue states in the Northeast run against the sort of, they call it the corrupt democratic machine. So I, I think that if Magaziner ends up winning this primary, uh, the Republicans will think they have a shot. I mean, there was a tweet from the NRCC already, the National yeah. Republican Congressional Campaign Committee, already citing this, kind of telegraphing where they're going to try to go in this race. Uh, Matthew, great reporting on this race. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate it. Okay, Matthew's going to take off, but Julia and Frank are going to stick around for our next segment. But first, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with their coverage of the Amazon Labor Union and the Starbucks Workers United Union's Labor Day March in New York City. Welcome back to Lever Time. This past Monday was Labor Day here in the United States, the day in which we recognize and celebrate the achievements of the early 20th century labor movement. Now, of course, it's 2022. And after more than 40 years of neoliberal free market policies that have almost entirely wiped away the victories of that labor movement, we're finally starting to see a new American labor movement emerge. At the cultural forefront of that new movement is the Amazon Labor Union and Starbucks Workers United. While the ALU successfully won the first union drive at an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, And while the Starbucks union has seen over 220 different stores organize, Amazon and Starbucks, the companies, are still doing everything within their power to deny these unions their first contracts through legal challenges and by simply dragging their feet. Though here's a bit of good news. Just this past week, the National Labor Relations Board, the federal agency that oversees uh, the labor situation, That board officially dismissed Amazon's complaints uh, that the ALU had illegally organized its warehouse. Amazon can still appeal this decision, but it's an important step in bringing Amazon to the bargaining table for a contract between the company and the union. But both unions are keeping the pressure on. So this past Monday, they organized a joint solidarity march in New York City on Labor Day. The Levers Julia Rock and producer Frank were on the ground at the march talking with organizers and attendees. Frank, Julia, you both went to the march this past Monday. How was it? What was your general takeaway? What was it like? Generally, it was great. Uh, it was it was really awesome. The 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 vibes were very positive. Um, as you mentioned, it was a solidarity march, so people were just they were gen- genuinely there to support these unions. Um, and they had a really cool uh, strategy and uh, uh, route that they took. So they started outside of Howard Schultz's penthouse. He's the CEO uh, of Starbucks <laughs> um, in the West Village. Then then we moved to Jeff Bezos's penthouse next to Madison Square Park. Um, And then we ended in Times Square on the TKTS steps. Uh, So yeah, it was was very cool to to witness it uh, firsthand. (laughs) 
So Chris Smalls, the president of the Amazon Labor Union, who's been on this podcast, he was leading the march, right? I mean, he was the guy at the at the head of the march. Yeah, he was he was certainly the the focal point of the entire event, and it, it was striking for me just you know to follow him around for a couple of hours. And I think there has been a lot of you know sort of reporting from publications like New York Magazine saying like, oh, is the fame getting to Chris Smalls's head? Like. You know, is he really the legitimate leader of this this independent um, union movement, whatever? And you know, if you're you're up close to him or, or watching him lead a march or a protest, it's so clear why he has become the leader he's become. He's just unbelievably charismatic, good at reading the crowd, um, you know, meeting lots of people, shaking hands. It was it was a pretty remarkable thing to witness. I mean, we need labor labor leaders in this country who have that kind of charisma. I mean, we we really we really do. I mean, I I, I feel like that era existed probably 70, 80, 90 years ago, where you had kind of larger than life labor labor leaders. And there was John L. Lewis as one example. John L. Lewis was the leader of the mine workers uh, and was kind of this larger than life figure. Um, I feel like that, that, that the labor movement hasn't had that for a long time, right? Yeah. And there, there was a moment where we were walking along and I was like, am I walking next to like our generation's Eugene Debs right now? Like, <laughs> it, it, like legitimately, you know, and Julie and I had that conversation about how, you know, as soon as anyone in on the left becomes famous, sometimes the left will turn on them. But we were like, no, this this is a real ass dude that like this is just a guy who has found himself in this place. And he's very good at articulating a strong working class message. The way we're doing this, the way we're organizing uh, real grassroots, um, non-traditional, new school, new generation of organizing. And that's what it's going to take to get these companies to bend the knee and come to the table. Because obviously for decades, we all know in this country, unions, labor, organized labor, it's been on a decline because of the billions and trillions of dollars of corporation money and propaganda and misinformation out there for the last 40, 50 years. We got to remind them every single damn time who runs their operations. It's the workers. So I'm hoping, and I already been spreading this seed, that one day we all, for all the industries that are here today, we all get on the same accord. Okay, so who else uh, did you both get to talk to while you were there? So we had a chance to talk to a bunch of union members, some organizers and attendees. Um, First, I spoke with a Starbucks worker who was actually fired from a store in Great Neck, Long Island. Her name was Jocelyn Chukianki. Jocelyn had been fired from her store last year for what she claimed was retaliation. Why don't you work at the Great Neck Starbucks in Long Island anymore? I was fired in uh, what I believe is for unionizing the store or attempting to unionize the store. 
Got it. And was that a store that successfully unionized, or you're still or was still organizing? Unfortunately, we, after intense union busting, we lost our vote five to six. This is after a hundred percent of people who worked in our location signed union cards. Everyone was on board, and then our management started union busting to such an extreme point where it got people really afraid to form a union. And if you had something to say to Howard Schultz right now, what would you say? Recognize the union. Stop union busting within your stores, and hire. I mean, rehire all of the unjustly and illegally fired uh, baristas. We deserve our jobs, and we deserve to be uh, our voices to be heard. We also spoke to Isaiah Brooks, who is one of the lead organizers from Amazon's LDJ5 warehouse, which was the second warehouse in Staten Island that held a union election with the Amazon labor union, although the vote failed. So what, what was your impression as a worker in, a worker organizer inside that store? What 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 went wrong? Why, why didn't that uh, vote succeed, in your opinion? Um, the misinformation that was given by the employer was given at a faster rate than we were able to put out the proper information. In the turnaround from the election from JFK 8, what, what, what Amazon learned from losing at JFK 8, they did a little different when they got to LDJ 5, and that turnaround for us was too quick for us to be able to combat that in that time. And what are the conditions inside of the, your warehouse right now? Are you, are you guys feeling positive? Are you feeling a little like beaten down right now? Does it ebb and flow? I guess for, I guess for us as the union, the, the people are starting to gravitate more towards it and feeling like, you know, this is, we are who, who the union is and not that the union is a different entity, like how the employer tried to spin it before. And um, so while Amazon is still Amazon, the people are like, we're more community now. We're more of a community. We're more together. Uh, a lot of the people that voted no before have since took shots on the chin from Amazon, and now they see what we were saying. So for, for Amazon, maybe not so good, but for us, very good. I love to hear that. <laughs> and Isaiah, if you had one message for Jeff Bezos, what would it be? Wake up. Recognize that we're not going to go anywhere. We just want equal rights. We want to be treated fairly. We don't want to be treated like numbers. Treat us like people. Don't hide behind the laws when some of the laws stop people from being human. I'd say the attendance of the march was probably around two to three hundred people. Julia, does that sound about right? I'm, I'm not good at guesstimating, but... Well, it was a bit tough because, you know, we were in the streets of New York City and I think onlookers at different points joined in, but 200, 300 sounds right. And that includes a bunch of just like rank and file union members from other unions who were there in solidarity. Um, we actually spoke to one woman who's a, a first grade teacher here in New York. Her name is Rachel Paguaga, and she is a member of the United Federation of Teachers, which is the teachers union. And what brought you here today? Um, basically, it's solidarity, man. I think that as somebody who is positioned to be in a very strong union, it's important for us to come out and help, you know, people who are trying to be part of the labor movement in large ways get recognized. You know, we are in a very privileged position as people who have a strong union, and I want that for every worker. And what has this new labor movement, this like that's being spearheaded by Amazon, Starbucks, all of these service workers, what has this meant to you at this at this time in our nation's history? 
That is a gigantic question. I think I want a very comprehensive answer. Exactly. You're gonna get really detailed, an SAT SA level essay. Um, I think that it's the reckoning of that workers have more power than I think we've realized. Um, for people who are who have felt really complacent or haven't felt like their voices have been heard, there there has been like very obvious actionable things that have gone on to say, hey, it's not just them that can do it, but we can do it as well. So it's just a reckoning of to the bosses of like, hey, people are recognizing your bullshit is bullshit and we're not gonna fucking take it anymore. Perfect perfectly put. <laughs> From the teacher. From All the teacher. Class. It's Labor Day. Yeah. What does Labor Day mean to you on this day? Oh man. It means a lot. I think that it's just kind of a reminder of what's been fought before. You know what I mean? That like a lot of things that we take for granted in terms of like conditions that we do have in the workplace and our ability to have weekends, you know, things that are very often overlooked is just kind of a reminder of where we came from and where we still have to go. I also had a chance to catch up with Seth Goldstein, who is the Amazon Labor Union's pro bono attorney who has been helping them with their National Labor Relations Board unfair labor practices cases. When the NLRB forces Amazon to recognize the union, Amazon's going to try to appeal it. Is that sort of the concern right now? Of course it is. They lost the um, objection hearing, but that's not going to stop them from delaying and trying to get into federal court where they hope that a right-wing court will throw out the election and possibly um, overturn the National Labor Relations Act. I'm very concerned about it. It's a backdoor to the Lochner type of case. And, and, and you were just starting to tell me about someone who had recently been fired. Uh, what, what's the situation with him? We have an um, employee in Albany that was fired for allegedly kicking an empty box. And it was a violation of the workplace um, violence prevention. However, <laughs> however, um, he never had a disciplinary action and he was always asking questions about safety and trying to make things fair for everybody. So he's in a terrible situation because he's on cancer medication and I'm afraid that his life is in danger because Amazon has cut off his health insurance, which is despicable. Okay, so this was a big march in the heart of New York City. One question that came to mind, my political mind, is were there any elected officials there showing their support? Not technically elected, but at one point I did uh, interrupt a bunch of uh, Alphabet Union members because uh, I was trying to talk to them for an interview. And they all turned at me, like looking at me like, what are you doing talking to us right now? And I realized I interrupted them talking to Marianne Williamson. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I was to be like, I'm so sorry, Marianne Williamson, continue. But we did get a chance to speak with Tiffany Caban, who's a New York City council member representing District 22 in Queens. And she talked to us about how elected officials, specifically at the city level, can support workers in their organizing efforts. We are in the middle of a, a movement of just the, the biggest, fastest growing unionization drives around the country. And this is certainly like the center of it right here in New York City. Uh, and then you have folks like um, Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, like kind of trying to sell a narrative that this isn't happening. So it's really important to come together to be super visible, to say it is happening, we're building power. And then the cross-union um, solidarity is really huge because you have sectors that are unionizing for the first time out here, like Amazon Labor Union, like Starbucks, with what we call, right, the institutional labor, RWDSU, UAW, and other folks coming together 
the momentum is palpable. It's really important. And I mean, I can say as a city legislator, right, that we see this and we understand that it's it's a mandate that we need to be a pro worker, pro union city and legislate that way. And so certainly those are the things that we're thinking about when we're introducing legislation, trying to pass it. Um, so I'm actually in the next few months going to be uh, introducing a couple of pieces of legislation that I am very excited about that should, you know, help, right? Like the point is also to put more tools in, in workers' toolboxes to expand their capacity and create systems of accountability when bosses and corporations union bust, right? Giving people the ability to unionize and build power and set the conditions of their workplace. But you even look at the last city council that passed um, the the just just cause employment for fast food workers, right? The fast food sector, making it so that you know a lot of people don't really even know that you you can get fired for no reason at all, and simply creating a mechanism where employers have to tell you why that there's you know a system that they have to show that you did something wrong that they provided adequate training training giving you the opportunity to improve your performance that they can't you know the equivalent of firing you by lowering your hours so much that you're forced to leave these are things that the city can legislate around and we can expand it across sectors to protect the most vulnerable workers right which are immigrant and low-wage workers and obviously you know immigrant workers can't join unions and so then it's for our our legislatures to step up that much more and say well we're going to protect this this particular vulnerable sector of workers as as well we just saw um the city for the first time is suing starbucks for uh you know an unlawful firing at a starbucks in my neighborhood because there are two that are, are unionizing so these are proactive steps that the city can can make to again like support workers and make sure that you know, New York is living up to its its moniker of being a union town. So you guys go from Howard Schultz's penthouse to Jeff Bezos's penthouse to Times Square. What did the scene in Times Square look like? Oh, it was it was so dope. Um, <laughs> truly, we we got to walk up Broadway through traffic, stopping traffic all the way into the heart of Times Square, um, and then. They chose to land the whole thing on the TKTS steps, uh, which, if you don't know, are these like iconic red steps in the middle of Times Square uh, where, you know, tourists can just kind of like sit and chill for a little bit. So they went up so that Chris had a nice elevated place to talk from. And Julie and I were we were I, we were like, we got to be at the front when we get to this. We get to Times Square. So we were up on the steps near him and we got to like look out on Times Square and see like all of these people and just like and it's Labor Day. There's tourists. There's people. They didn't know that this this uh, march was supposed to be happening. And just to see the amount of people, this crowd uh, that was watching all of these union people speak, it was really it was really cool to to see it. And you know, for, for those in the audience who haven't been to Times Square, it's like the worst place it's in terrible. America. It's probably. so bad. It's just packed with people. There are TV screens on all of the buildings, flashing brightly colored advertisements. Uh, it smells horrible. It's loud. Um, so there was something really amazing about having this union march sort of permeate this disgusting, what Smalls referred to as the heart of American capitalism. I might question um, that characterization, but it, it was a really remarkable place to bring the march to. And so from there, that's where the, the final round of speeches uh, started. 
We heard from a woman named Christina Dava, a special ed teacher from the Bronx and also a member of the United Federation of Teachers, who spoke about the conditions at her school and Mayor Eric Adams' attack on the public schools. I stand in solidarity with Amazon Labor Union, Starbucks Workers Union, my caucus, movement of rank and file educators of the UFT. <laughs> stand in solidarity with all workers, one you. I also wanted to share with you that New York City public schools are under attack by Mayor Adams. He has to fund He has to fund in public schools at least $469 million of money that is not New York City money, money that is state and federal money that was given to New York City specifically for schools for COVID recovery. He is cutting every municipal budget except for the police. Also, another thing, all the city unions are coming up for contracts. The UFT, our contract ends on September 13th. We have not had a single contract negotiating team meeting. I know because I'm on the team. The mayor is sitting everybody's contract out to let everybody expire so that we're basically fucked. And then one of the speakers who I thought had one of the strongest messages of the day uh, was this this guy named David Galarza from CSEA Local 1000. Uh, he's a Puerto Rican American union member uh, speaking about the conditions in Puerto Rico. And, and just a heads up for our listeners, there there is a little bit of cursing uh, in this next bit. Chris Smalls finished out with his closing remarks. You know what? We got a whole bunch of unions here today, a whole bunch of working class people here today, a whole bunch of community members here today, organizations. Thank you once again for coming out on this hot labor summer day, union day, because this is our day. Every single day is union day because it's our time. Every day we have to remind the boss who run this shit. Don't ever give up, don't ever quit. An injury to one is an injury to all. 
Okay, and what about Chris? Uh, did you did you both get a chance to talk to him? Yes, we did, but it was near impossible. He got absolutely mobbed at the at the end of the speeches, and I just got to say, you know, I we got to support independent media, but if you're going to show up at these things, don't ask Chris Smalls, what does organizing mean? Like you're just wasting (laughs) your time, his time, all of our time. But, but we did grab him before he had to leave and, and got a couple of questions in. Chris, you put on a hell of a show today. How do you feel right now? Exhausted. I'm tired. It's hot. I'm drained, but it was great. You know, I, I, I put all my energy and blood, sweat and tears into this every day. So it's just another day for me. How are you feeling about the upcoming union drive at the Albany store? Yeah, I'm I'm very confident. I'm very, very excited about it because, uh, you know, the workers are proving that they're resilient, you know, filing upstate New York in a very tough um, county. Um, It just proves that the unions and the union efforts are reaching the mass. Last question, General Strike 2024, what's going on? I'm calling for it, you know, as a union president, I'm taking a stance. And I think that we all should do it. Are you guys going to get ready in the, over the next couple of years? We're going to get ready now. Listen, thanks to both of you for covering this, taking part of your Labor Day weekend to cover this. It's a really uh, important story. We're going to continue covering it here uh, at The Lever, the rise of a new American labor movement. Uh, let's hope that that continues to rise. Thanks to both of you for your work. Absolutely. It was so much fun. Yeah, I'd agree, Tim. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Levertime Premium get to hear our bonus segment, my interview with Eitan Hirsch about the concept of political hobbyism and what it would actually take to activate the politically inactive and make more folks see politics not just as a spectator sport, but as something to organize in and gain power in. In a word, the difference is whether you have a goal or strategy or not, right? So we know that people are spending an hour, two hours a day with their brains focused on politics, but almost all of them, like 95% of them, are doing some combination of just like learning facts or posting stuff, being like an amateur pundit, but they have no particular goal or strategy for achieving that goal. They're not doing any kind of organized politics. They're not working with other people to try to get some policy passed or get some politician elected. And please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Levertime on your favorite podcast app. One last favor to ask, if you like this podcast and our reporting, please tell your friends and family about The Lever and the work we're doing here. Forward our emails to them, encourage them to subscribe. The only way independent media grows is by word of mouth. So we need all the help we can get to continue doing the work that we're doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Keep rocking the boat.